0: Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hey, welcome to the latest episode for the Market Maker Podcast, episode 72. And of course big news final nail in the coffin for for boris who of course has resigned so don't want to get too bobbed down in the semantics of the politics and certainly don't want to be giving too much of my political disposition away but we will definitely talk about what happens next this con contest process for conservative leadership i think it's a very important thing that that people should understand because it's going to be happening every few years. I, I, I don't say the fixed term amount, because it's very rare these days that heads of state make it through a full term. So I won't oh, go that yeah. far. <laughs> but we'll talk about um, that, and in connection, of course, to market implications. Uh, so we'll delve into it from, from that perspective. And then going to talk about the euro, we hit a 20 year, two decade low. And we're pretty much at parity, something which I know that you'll be in some way pleased about because it was your your call from several months ago that would be heading in this direction so what is driving that move why is it picked up pace particularly this week will be interesting to know and of course it comes in the context of germany heading in for its worst energy crisis since the oil price shock of the early 1970s in fact the economy minister of germany went as far as to say that germany is facing its Lehman Brothers moment if Russia cuts off natural gas to Europe, which we'll we'll talk about. But first things first, Piers, Boris is gone. Boris is gone and the pound
1: rallied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bojo, uh, see ya. I mean, talk about being on borrowed time. Um, yeah, so the pound rallied, which, well, really, I think is two, I would say two reasons. I I would like your view as well. I mean, I think primarily it's about the prolonged um, circus that's been going on in number 10, and I guess the inevitability of Boris getting shoved out, and just the longer that went on for, A, You could argue the more damage it does, sort of politically in terms of actually trying to run the country, because all Westminster seem to have been doing for the last few months is nothing to do with running the country. It's all internally obsessed, trying to find new reasons to bash Boris um, in order to try and get him out the door, right? So it's kind of, it's all been internally focused. And so in the end, when you're in an inflation crisis then you know we kind of like the leadership to be full on full focus on actually trying to bring the nation out of this crisis right so i think the fact that boris is out is definitely a positive right let's actually try and turn attention back to the crucial things going on out there you know the cost of living crisis right so i think that's a good thing the whole uncertainty around it all as well i mean uncertainty is always a negative for for markets so I think that's probably the other key point and then i'd say have i already say, said two points maybe i have but i'm going to say a third i guess it depends on who comes in to replace boris um and maybe you could argue the tories are in a tough spot and you may well see some tax giveaways here when a, you know when a new when a new kind of leader comes in and they happen to be the leader of the governing party so they're essentially an unelected prime minister they tend to want to hit the ground running with with a few giveaways so maybe from an economic point of view there's some kind of argument you could spin that um that's a positive and that's why maybe the pound ticked higher as we went through yesterday's um unsurprising news that boris has gone
0: so by what you're saying then you're ruling out rishi sunak and i say this what? because his obviously leaning is that he's typically a fiscal what we classify as a fiscal hawk yeah his priority is about balancing the books put it simply and so therefore he was talking about raising taxes which was part of his downfall if you like of his shooting star in yep. combination with his wife's tax status and so forth but is he I out think- of the
1: runnings then given what you said I think he's not. Uh, well, is he going to run? First of all, right? Um, right? I mean, I think yeah. whenever I, I, probably the most of the nations probably thinking, oh, well, Rishi's going to step up. He'll probably become leader. But number one, he hasn't announced that he's going to run, and there's definitely good reasons why he wouldn't. Just all all about timing. Mm. He might, and he's still very young, relatively, and so, you know, he could easily shelve this and wait for this nightmare situation with regards to inflation, cost of living crisis, Russia, Ukraine, Mm. it's not an easy moment to kind of step in. So, I I wouldn't surprise me if he kind of just, just steps back and and lets someone else take this hospital pass from Boris, um, and he maybe comes in later down the line. So, And even if he did run, would he win? I mean, certainly the bookies don't have him as favourite. The bookies have got him as second favourite at the moment. So...
0: Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about then the timings, the process, then we can talk just briefly about some of these candidates. Um, Because, you know, a lot of this would add into the picture, I guess, if you're trading, investing in sterling currency, as much as you're tracking ever-increasing inflation, and we are expecting that to happen. The Bank of England, of course, thinks it's going to go well above, beyond where it is at the moment, at kind of the low 9% region, definitely busting double digits. The Bank of England, what do they do next after consecutive hikes and so forth? So definitely the timings around this are are quite key. So the process here is that uh, it's going to take some time. You might might have uh, observed that from the outgoing speech from the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson or the current, I should say, for now, at least, because it sounded more like a victory uh, speech (laughs) rather than, uh, I think he's trying to write his own history in a sense of he will be remembered as someone who secured a resounding majority and got pushed out because of panicked cabinet members uh, and Tory uh, party uh, members. But that aside, so what happens next? So the Conservative Party grandees who are the people who are in charge of kind of formulating then the scheduling Around how the party operates, um, they've said this morning that basically uh, they intend to try and install a new prime minister by early September. This has actually caused a lot of worry for some people. I think former Prime Minister John Major's been banging the drum, and he's been quite anti-Boris for a while. But you know, what could Boris do between now and September? It makes pe- some people a little bit nervous, even though the Prime Minister has said he's not going to touch anything major on policies. I must remind people, he did say there is absolutely no reason for me to resign two days ago. Then he resigned 12 hours later. So in the world of politics, you know, don't believe a word you hear until it becomes like, till it crystallizes. But the timeline we're looking at early September and what we're looking out for on Monday, Monday coming is this um, 1922 committee, these backbenchers who basically formalized this process to, to begin. Now, what happens here is a, a couple of things. So we do have a, a summer recess. So, you know, an economic crisis, nothing gets in the way of your summer holidays. Absolutely. Certainly if you're an MP or a politician, this goes pretty much globally, I guess, definitely in Western Europe. Um, so there is a gap uh, and that comes in. So there, you know, no, no business conducted for a couple of weeks, uh, but this does play into partly this race. Um, and so the contest in itself goes in two stages. The first stage is Conservative MPs kind of whittle down a long list of candidates, just two. So in the coming days, weeks, this weekend, you'll likely start to get these candidates throwing their hat in the ring. Yeah, I'm running. And there's been, there's going to be a lot from what I'm reading. I mean, even yeah. Steve Baker, like the huge yeah. Eurosceptic, he's in it as far as yeah. he's concerned. And there's lots of names you've probably never heard of who are going to run as much as some of the ones more familiar. And like we said, Rishi still undeclared at this point. Um, Siji Javid, so on. Um, So, what happens is they go through and they all then kind of get whittled down to a final two candidates, and that's followed by a campaign among the party, the Conservative Party's 100,000 odd members that make up the Conservative Party, who will then decide the next leader. And so, in this period, which takes weeks, these candidates get to go out kind of galvanize popularity internal. The public gets to be a bit more educated about who they are, what they stand for, because this is all gearing up for appointing a new leader of of the country, of course. As you rightly said, the person who's the favorite is a guy called Ben Wallace. And I'm going to hazard a guess that probably most people are like, Ben Wallace? (laughs) Who is that? Um, so a little bit of background on, on Ben, <laughs> uh, he served as a whip, so this is the person in, you know, kind of making it super straightforward, he's the person that if you're a cabinet member or a politician like the Prime Minister in the Houses of Parliament, you send your whip out and he does all your dirty work, you know, like getting all the troops together to try and push over policies and these sorts of things. He's got the handle, very important position actually carries a lot of the power uh, internally to get people on side and things like that. So he serves as a whip, also been Northern Ireland minister. And also lastly, the UK's longest serving uh, security minister um, has come from a background of basically uh, forces, security type roles and so on. So very much focused in that, that area. We'll come back to why that might be a problem for, for our friend Ben. Um, but what's happened here and the reason why the bookies have jumped on Ben is because a snap YouGov poll came out at the moment Bojo resigned and it was taken from 716 Conservative Party members. So a small sample size of that bigger poll, which will then have to consequently vote in the coming weeks. And it had Ben Wallace, not just leading the overall race, but he was well ahead when they actually start running models of what about Ben versus Liz what about Ben versus Siji Javid, Ben versus Rishi Sunak? And he wins in every scenario, basically. So the bookies have moved in that direction as a reflection of that information. Um, I must stress, <laughs> the world can change very quickly. He's a leader <laughs> now, but that doesn't mean it's going to remain that way likely for very long. But the challenges with Ben, and this is what most political commentators are saying, because you know, I know people who listen to this podcast, neither Piers or I are uh, scientists. So we're not qualified to talk about COVID vaccines, particularly in depth, nor are we political uh, correspondents or strategists. But the general take here from commentators is twofold. The issues with Ben, one, the obvious, who the heck is this guy? So yes. you've got to think about how likely is it that this person is gonna have election appeal to the broader public? Now, there is that layover period, obviously, when this race happens, which gives Ben time to educate people around who he is and so forth. Um, The problem there, then, both internally and externally, is no one's got any idea, actually, what he actually thinks about majority of government-led policies. Because he's been quite concentrated in the very specific area of really security national security based type type roles, and given his you know kind of history of his career and so forth, so that could be although he's a leader now, the undoing of him to get everyone yeah. on side and for the, actually the party to get behind him that's where Rishi comes in because right. he's the obvious fit because he's the face that you're very familiar with and One of the things that these snap polls presented was the third element is who would be the best performing Conservative member against the main lead opposition, Keir Starmer of the Labour Party. And the only candidate that came out favorably in these polls was Rishi Sunak. Um, The caveat being he's ahead of Keir by one point. So (laughs) it's pretty bad (laughs) at the moment. conservative's point of view, we know this, there's been a ton of stuff going on for a while uh, in that respect. Um, In terms of Rishi, as you said, not to go into him too much, kind of talked about it, he did actually write, he penned in his resignation letter, I recognise this may well be my last ministerial job. Um, I don't believe that at all, (laughs) (laughs) is my initial point of view, so just to kind of give it context again with, you know, I guess to be clear, for any finance student, a politician is definitely not a central banker. <laughs> and so, this whole idea of credibility and sticking to your guns and like giving clear transparency and uh, and and in fostering that kind of, um, I guess, credibility to the point of people making investment decisions. Yeah, politicians are different. And so, the other people then are the newly appointed chancellor. Um, who was previously seen as a safe pair of hands. Um, He was actually the vaccine minister, if you remember. And that was actually deemed a big success. Yeah, He got a lot of points on the board for that. And he's kind of under, Boris had a pretty decent rise. But what I've been listening to is the fact that how he's behaved since being appointed as chancellor and then telling his boss to go do one (laughs) 24 hours later, has probably meant that he's burnt a lot of that trust and a lot of um, the goodwill that he had built up. We'll see. There's a lot of time to run. It's all a bit raw at the moment. Um, but he's otherwise seen as a pretty safe set of hands and quite wide, broad appeal across the party. So he's in it. He's in the running. Yeah. Um, other candidates, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary. Um, yeah, she actually voted Remain, if you remember. Yeah. And now she bangs the drum saying, just get Brexit done. And like, yeah. and she's, she's definitely been right there post-Brexit deals as trade minister. Uh, she definitely plays into that favoritism of Tory grassroots and so on. So she's quite popular. She's up there with the bookies for sure in the runnings. And then Sajid Javid actually was in the running of, against Boris, lost 2019. Um, he actually is very experienced, never quite really cut it though on top of the top job um in the past so yeah that's just general the uh, the process hope that makes a bit more sense so between now and then one thing i couldn't find which i was very interested to know was i wonder if boris can just with his resignation do you know what <laughs> forget this <laughs> i guess once the 1922 committee formalize oh, yeah. on monday exactly that's the, that's the will's in motion. Um, but yeah, you've not heard the last of Boris, so I can tell you that now. but but I guess from a market's perspective, then, yeah, the 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 economic picture is going to deteriorate in the coming weeks and months. So things are going to get materially worse. Consumer confidence will continue to decline amid a worsening of the cost of living crisis under the kind of weight of rising prices. Compound that with the, this uncertainty. Has this, this is, uh, is this cause for reshaping your ideas about Sterling from a direction or conviction point of view? You know, are you um, bearish before and now you feel more so or, or,
1: or is this just kind of a moot point? No, I, I, I would say that my directional view has not changed. And that's because easily the most powerful force Driving the downtrend on cable, so sterling versus the dollar. I mean, this week we've you know punched down below the one hundred and twenty handle. So just as a, a bit of a, a reminder, that's put us we're kind of down. But one hundred and twenty was was a really important level back in it's actually in the summer of twenty nineteen um, in the post Brexit vote fallout. That's kind of hmm. where we sort of trended down to and, and well I should say the summer of 20 sorry January 2017 is when we first hit 120 that was in the fallout from the Brexit vote in 2016 that was a floor, and then we bounced um 2019 summer of 2019 we retested that 120 handle and bounced then COVID hit and only very very briefly during that worst COVID sort of end of March, start of April, we dropped below 120 and we went down to about the 115 handle, but it was a super fast blip and then back up. So really taking out that anomaly COVID blip, 120 is massive. Um, And I I think we break it. Well, we've kind of, we're trading below it now. and And I would still, I would favor a move further lower. And this is mostly nothing to do with politics in the UK. It's mostly nothing to do with Boris's circus. Um, it's to do with the economic situation um, in the UK compared to the US. It's to do with the monetary policy outlook in the UK compared to the US. And, you know, right now, the the, the divergence is, is widening, which is what's driving this broad dollar strength. So these big moves you're seeing on cable below 120 euro dollar, we'll talk about in a minute, down to parity, it's it's definitely uh, a big dollar-strengthening story, whilst Europe are, you know, A, in a worse position economically, B, the inflation situation in Europe is going to be worse than it is in the UK, C, that's because of their proximity to this Russia-Ukraine situation, which makes the energy price spikes even larger in, in, in Europe. And so because of this, Like for the Bank of England, at least the Bank of England, I guess, if we we've mentioned Europe, if you bring in the ECB a little bit here, I mean, at least the Bank of England have been hiking rates, right? And actually, they were the first to hike. And you could argue from that point of view, well, hang on a minute, if the the Bank of England were the first bank to hike rates, they hiked back in December. And what was it, five meetings in a row? Yeah. Um, So they hiked 1.25% in total across five meetings. 0.25% 0.25% increments okay so they hiked 1.25 but if you go back to December they hiked first and yet actually sterling did did go up against the dollar um, at the end of December um, we move like from mid-December it moved from 132 up to kind of 136 and that was because the Bank of England were the first mover but as soon as you get to the 13th of January That's the high of 2022 on the 13th of January, and since then, it's been one-way traffic to the downside, even though the Bank of England did another hike before the Fed even started hiking. So you could say, well, hang on, if you're banging on about monetary policy divergence and how this drives exchange rates, well, the Bank of England were hiking rates and the Fed were not. So shouldn't the value of the pound, shouldn't it have been going up throughout the whole of quarter one of 2022? And the key point is that, well, not only did it not go up, it went down. And the key point is about future expectations. Markets aren't pricing the present, they're pricing the future. And as we were tracking through January, it became acutely obvious that the Fed were not only gonna start hiking, but actually they were behind the curve. They should have started hiking back in December like the Bank of England, and they're gonna have to catch up by hiking faster. And so actually here we are now in July, and the Fed, the Fed have hiked more. If you add them up, they've hiked one and a half percent. They did 0.25, 0.5, 0.75. So the Fed have hiked one and a half percent to the Bank of England's 1.25. More importantly, the Fed are going to continue to hike fast. So we expect another 0.75 hike in July. The Bank of England may well be done. The bank, I mean, I guess it's up for debate, but it could be the case, the Bank of England's ended their cycle now. So this is where the divergence comes in. It's like the second half of 2022. What's gonna happen to interest rates and the Fed's gonna carry on hiking and the Bank of England may stop. And the Europeans, although they've said they wanna start hiking, they're probably too late. They might get one in and then oops, we're in recession. And uh, they're going to have to turn the ship. So, so that's it. That's what's driving these currency pairs to so the downside. That's why the dollar's strengthening against everything, and certainly specifically against the euro and the pound. What happens in the U.K. on the political front? look, no, doesn't matter. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's mu- almost an insignificant force. But you could say it's a positive on a minor case because like, Boris is out, let's get someone new in. Who that person is will obviously remain to be seen. Um, but, but in the end, it doesn't matter who it is. They're not going to be able to... They haven't got the magic pill to solve this crisis that we're in. Um, and so you know, it won't have too much of an effect, I don't think personally, on the direction of markets into the end of 2022. Yeah, and to make that rate
0: differential make sense, we're talking about potentially the Bank of England at peak hiking at one and a quarter percent. I was just looking at the Fed's dot plots. Right. And for the end of this year, the Fed themselves are saying that the federal funds rate will be at 3.4 percent. So you're talking 3.4 percent as like the neutral rate where they're heading for now. Comparative to one and a quarter, which is a big gap. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. That's it.
1: For sure. Makes, it makes sense. Um, and, and with the euro, I mean, you know, it's all the same arguments, but I guess what's happening this week,
0: hmm.
1: you know, all of a sudden it's just all over the press, massive story. You know, everyone's talking about the euro dollar. Everyone's talking about parity and And it's almost like a self-fulfilling story, right? I mean, the key was we kind of broke the, let me just go back on my chart. Like there was a key level around 106 um, that was the 2020 low. It was the COVID low. We broke that, you know, back in April, right? Then that kind of got tongues wagging about Where's this euro going to go? And all the banks were coming out. Some were saying parity. Some were saying no chance. It's going back to 120, whatever. It was a a real divide in opinion. But then it was the break of the 105 level, which was really what set the cat amongst the pigeons. This was the key bottom in 2015. um, And then again in 2017, 105. And and we've broken it, right? And everyone's talking right now. Next, it's parity. And this then just, of course, shapes people's Attitudes and expectations and behaviors around that market. It it kind of, if everyone's saying it's going to parity, it will go to parity Mm. because traders who are trading it think it's going to parity. So the way they're buying and they're selling, there'll be more debt, there'll be more sell side volume. And it will naturally get down there. Obviously, all the fundamentals and now the technicals all point to it happening. Technically, that break of 105 is massive fairish technical breakout right but then the fundamentals and it's accelerated this week um, because of that technical break but then also because of the the data is just providing more and more evidence that this narrative is true where europe is suffering more than the u.s economically and therefore there won't be as many rate hikes if any and whilst the fed will carry on hiking and this is where that divergence is coming from We've had the PMI data out of Europe, which you know dropped sharply. We're still just above 50, like the manufacturing PMI in, Europe, in the Eurozone was 52.1, but a, a big drop from the 54.6 in May. Um, so the PMIs are looking concerning. And then we've got this, all of a sudden, this German energy crisis, which we'll talk about in a second. And it's just very alarming. And I think the sentiment out there in the marketplace around Europe right now has was really negative, and this week has gone even more negative, and, and that's what's driving that that kind of euro dollar accelerated, almost inevitable move all the way down to parity.
0: Yeah, the the fact that the worst is yet to come for eurozone inflation but with investor morale consumer confidence already at its worst point since the depths of covid which was severe you throw in the energy crisis what can the ecb do in this scenario
1: i mean i hope that's a rhetorical question <laughs> i guess
0: then from more of a trading perspective are you does this make you think right In terms of my geographic focus, it moves to the US because of the things you've been talking about. And so when you're talking about from a, yeah, a tactical point of view.
1: Yeah, if you're talking about stocks, then. Yeah, I mean, for sure, Europe's looking uh, worse than the US. You know, you've seen like the likes of Bridgewater. Took on. We talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? They took on a mass. They've taken on a massive short bet on European stocks, and just for all of these big top-level macro reasons. And so, yeah. But would you want to be invested in US stocks? I mean, US stocks—they have got up this week, and a, a little bit strange one. I mean, I think, and again, it's about interest rate expectations because I think essentially markets have kind of just slightly repriced where they think interest rates will be at the end of this year. You said the Fed dot plot. So the Fed have been telling us 3.4%. But markets, if you go back a few weeks ago, mm. were starting to price 3.9%. Yeah. But actually, this week, it's kind of repriced back to 3.2%. So this is what I mean about interest rate expectations. That is the big driving force. Stocks have gone up because of that marginal dampening of where we think rates might be at the end of the year. They're still going to go up, though so don't forget i mean that causes short term market moves right so right a couple of days of upside for the s&p great but long or medium to long term you know that that future interest rate adjustment right that interest rate expectation adjustment doesn't solve the fundamental underlying economic problem where inflation's too high and companies are starting to cut costs and there's whilst the you know the labor market and we're going to get some really important info about that from the U.S. this afternoon with non-farm payrolls but the labor market's super tight but you've already seen you know job openings that have been at like record 10 million job openings in the U.S. but they're, they're starting to that's starting to close and shrink and I think the general direction from an economic point of view is one of still real uncertainty real negativity real almost inevitability about the slide into recession and so whilst you don't want to own european stocks necessarily do you want to own us stocks so what you're keeping your powder dry then i would say i mean look we've had yield curve inversion again this week just kind of just kind of switching to uh, to bonds briefly um you know the u the us 10-year yield is is below um the the u.s two-year yield now um so that's what we talk about as, as a curve inversion u.s 10 years at 2.98 percent and the two-year yields at 3.02 so that's your classic recession um sort of uh, signal but we, it's not like we needed that to suddenly realize oh wow there's a recession coming um, we you know it's it's coming and as as a alluded to earlier, it's it's behavioral, right? If we think there's going to be a recession and it's nailed on, it's definitely going to happen because we humans behave, right? We prepare for the recession. Let's lay off 10% of our workforce. Let's cut our marketing budget in half. You know, these types of actions, that's what actually creates the recession. So if we think there's a recession coming and we prepare for it, it's the preparation for it that actually creates the recession. So <clears throat> really the, the big, the one, the one unknown in my mind, the recession's happening. The one unknown is does the dampening on the demand side sort out this inflation problem? Does inflation come back down because the recession leads to a dampening of demand? Does that happen, yes or no? If it's no, then we've got a serious problem. Talking of dampening demand,
0: oil also traded below 100. Right. Momentarily, it's moved back above there, talking about US oil. Yeah. Were you surprised by that at all? It was quite severe. Obviously, Mm -hmm. we had a long weekend in the States. And then that day they returned to market was the day oil saw a pretty dramatic decline from trading around 110 to eventually, within a pretty short 24-hour period, Trying sub 100
1: i was surprised why
0: is there such a sudden realization if it's so obvious as you were saying
1: uh yeah i i was surprised by it so i'm not sure i have the answer to your question i mean i would say that the obvious explanation is that look people are now just thinking the recessions it's going to come sooner it's going to be more severe and i guess you can point to like the German energy crisis, you can point towards this PMI data, you can point towards the fact inflation's staying really high, but ultimately oil is now behaving off now a demand side collapse because of the recession, which has brought prices lower. But don't forget, we're still above hundred dollars. So it's not like, well, I guess, who is it? City, we're calling? 65 bucks was it or 40 end of dollars year. In, 45 at the end of, of, end of, the year. of 2023. yeah. Right. So that if we have a disaster nightmare recession and inflation drops as a result, then fine, yeah, oil oil has no business being above a hundred dollars. But we are still above a hundred dollars, and we've mm. obviously still got a very clear and present danger to supply with the ongoing Russia you know invasion of Ukraine. And, and how that all plays out, you might say there's a even bigger risk around gas than, than oil. But um, well, one thing that one thing that
0: will, I guess, alleviate any anxieties about uh, the hundred floor, is the yes. fact that there was an article in uh, FT, and there's a couple of technical analysts who are pointing out that this was purely a technical break of a multi-month trend line actually put right um oil on a trend line going back to around march Yep. so march you had an april retest may retest june retest and we broke it and the price dipped ran through the june low and hit 100 and now it's steady and if anything bounced so yeah i mean it's important to I guess one of the lessons here from this and also the previous conversation we're having about sterling is that you cannot discount also the technicals even though we on this podcast talk predominantly about the fundamentals because there is that behavioral um kind of movement that can occur upon the breaking of these key levels so yeah that was one thing just to point out that i think explains really the rationale of why that happened so severely um, yep. And often that is the case, because when you look at price movement, and that's been my job for a career is to look at it like day day to day, second by second, you know, when there's a piece of news that is acted as a catalyst to spark a price move. And that was not one of them, because yep. even though the proportionate move was quite large. The way that it transpired over a period of hours is not a one singular headline, because what tends to happen in that scenario is the market goes from point A to point B immediately, doesn't hang around and drift lower like it did. And so, yeah, but look, one of the things you, you, you briefly touched on, but I'd wanna just get your take on a bit more detail is Germany because tons of headlines this week talking about pretty extreme measures You'd probably associate that if we're in a world war conditions, talking about rationing hot water, dimming street lights like pretty crazy stuff. Like, even the uh, there's a company called uh, Vanovia, the country's largest residential landlord, they're lowering temperatures of its tenants' gas central heating. <laughs> I mean, thank goodness we're in the summer and it's a scorching day, but I mean, that's how far it's gone. So what, yep. what is happening and what's the impact of this?
1: Well, this kind of, I think this kind of, well, obviously it's about German dependency on Russian gas. And, and look, don't forget, let's go back to the stat that 55% of um, gas, the Germany's gas comes, is imported from Russia, right? So they're on the hook for fifth, over half of their gas. So that's kind of, where it all comes from. Obviously, then the Russia-Ukraine situation kicks off. Clearly, then the West start implementing sanctions. Obviously, then this brings into question, uh, how, you know, the reliability of that 55% of supply. Um, but look, it's kicked on a couple of times in the last few weeks. So firstly, um, uh, this goes back to like mid-June. Uh, Gazprom reduced supply volumes through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and don't forget, one of the sanctions was that Germany put the kibosh on, on Nord Stream 2. So they've, they've stopped that from opening. But this is Nord Stream 1. Gazprom reduced supply. Um, and this, what they blamed, so Gazprom blamed it on Canadian sanctions that had left pumping equipment uh, maintained by Siemens stranded in Montreal. This was the kind of official line from Russia. Gazprom have reduced supply, it's nothing, look, it's nothing to do, we're not trying to play games here. Look, no, we just got some equipment in Montreal, we can't get it. I mean, pff, come on. Um, I don't think anybody was buying that one. Anyway, that kind of just set some alarm bells off that Putin is using, is weaponizing this gas um, supply and Germany are front and center You know, in the firing line of that. Um, on top of that then, on Monday, like next week in three days' time, um, Russia is shutting down the pipeline entirely. Now, this, this is officially scheduled. It's, there's a 10-day scheduled maintenance period okay? that just so happens to be starting on Monday. So the big fear is, and the big panic is, well, what happens if they don't turn it back on? What happens if actually this is the moment Putin uses this maintenance schedule to go, actually, you know what? Oh, the maintenance is taking longer than we thought. Yeah, it's gonna be another 10 days. Uh, Actually, it's probably not gonna be back online until end of August, blah, blah. So this is what I think people immediately are are worried about. Um, So obviously that then plays into, well, what does Germany do? And they've gone as far as turning back on their um, coal-fired power stations, so, this, I mean, this, you then start thinking about the whole political agenda towards um, green renewables. And this is a disaster from that point of view, because now they've literally fired back up um, two coal fired power stations. Um, <clears throat> they're supposed to be phasing out coal entirely by 2030. But these power stations can only supply about 5% of gas, uh, sorry, of electricity. Apologies. Um, This is to replace that kind of natural gas produced electricity. Um, Obviously, then you've got all these. I I guess one thing about trying to go to the consumer and say, look, let's be more efficient with the way we use gas, um, with the way we use power. I mean, actually, in a way, maybe this has long-term benefits because maybe you, you get forced through change now and actually breaks bad habits. You know, where we leave our lights on all day, where we run our central heating at 20 degrees throughout the entire night when we're in bed, like when we have, you know, hot water on tap 24-7, when we have our AC running 24-7, and it's like, well, we don't actually need that. You know, swimming pools, (laughs) yeah, these public swimming pools, they're taking the temperature from 19 degrees down to 17 degrees. Well, all right, it's going to hurt a bit more when you jump in. (laughs) but it's fine once you're in right so i mean maybe this 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 actually forces some long-term benefit where we become a little bit more conscious about how we're using energy and and that's a good thing obviously in the near term clearly it's an absolute crisis and yeah they've talked about this could be the lehman moment i mean this is for their kind of um uh, the kind of gas gas companies um, in, in, in Germany and how, you know, they may need bailing out here. Um, and, and, and to think about it economically, so the, 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 the current analysis, and it's obviously wildly difficult to predict, but they're basically saying that energy prices might rise anywhere between 71% and 200%, depending on how this plays out, right? And that what does that mean for households? If it goes up 71%, then that would mean they're uh, 1,000 euros worse off. If it goes up by 200%, they're 2,700 euros worse off. That's that's for a one-person household. So one person would be 2,700 euros worse off. For a household of four people, it then goes up to more like 3,800 euros worse off. That's a lot of money. Hmm. That is a lot of money. And when you times that by the number of people in the population, then you're talking about billions. That's a billions of euros negative hit to the economy from a consumption point of view. And right at the moment when we're teetering on the brink of recession anyway. So, yeah, there's huge uncertainty out there. And we don't know how it's going to play out. And this is definitely feeding through in market sentiment. And so, still bearish. Right, so that I mean, all
0: of this then gives perfect rationale for why this week talked about the kind of technical side of it, talked about the rate differential side of it, and talked about the the move compounded by this new emphasis on this energy crisis just so happening on the timetable of a scheduled maintenance period from the Russians. Yeah. And obviously, that conflict is at its, it's peaking interest again um, at this point in time. So, look, we'll we'll finish there. I know we could go on and talk about what's Putin likely to do, which I can already imagine he's going to at least run to the maximum 10 day beyond the period, knowing full well, given he is the sole real supplier, exactly how much they have in storage. So I'd see no reason why he would not run them down to a minimum level (laughs) in order to strengthen his position. Um, but that aside, look, we um, won't open up that can of worms. We'll, we'll leave it there for today. So as ever, thanks for listening. Uh, if you've made it through the full episode, uh, really appreciate it. Um, if you could um, give the, the podcast a rating, depending on what platform you are, uh, follow, subscribe. You'll get a notification as soon as any new episodes come out um, every week on a Friday. Um, feel free to connect with myself and peers via LinkedIn. Uh, happy to do so. The link will be in the, the show notes. All right, Piers, thanks as ever, and uh, everyone have a great weekend. Okay. See ya. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.